Facebook perfect family is involved in a deadly car crash in California, killing all eight family members. Accident or murder? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the KMH Podcast. I am your host as always, Brad. Today we'll be looking at the sad, tragic tale of the Hart family. Now let me begin with a warning. This episode deals with allegations of child abuse. Nothing graphic. I don't go that way. But I know that can be a trigger for some folks out there, so I didn't want anyone to be surprised. Please take care in listening to this episode and who you share it with. Love was in the air as the new millennium began in Minnesota. The two lovers were the soon-to-be Sarah and Jennifer Hart, who met in college and quickly became an item. The two eventually got married in Connecticut. Sarah supported the couple, while Jennifer managed a household. Jennifer also kind of served as the alpha of the duo, making the decisions and whatnot. After five years of being together, the women decided that it was time to start a family. Both had come from quite large families, and they thought it'd be great to raise their own big family together. They found three siblings in Houston who were in need of adoption, Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus, and adopt them they do in 2006. The family expanded again in 2008 when they adopted Sierra, Devante, and Jeremiah, also from the Houston area. This established what many of their friends and associates would lovingly call the Hart Tribe. Now, understand these kids came from very rough backgrounds. There's absent fathers, mothers dealing with drug addictions, crime throughout the family, throughout their neighborhood. It would be challenging for most parents to raise one of these kids, much less six. Now, the family was a bit unusual for a rural and conservative Minnesota. Not every neighborhood had a white lesbian couple raising six black adoptive children. The Hearts would often claim that because of their non-traditional family, they were subjected to stares and comments and even rude notes anonymously mailed to them. Nevertheless, it appears to neighbors and other outsiders that Jennifer and Sarah were apparently giving these six kids a stable environment to grow up in. The Hart Tribe was well-known on the local festival circuit. Both Jennifer and Sarah loved music, loved going to concerts, so they would, of course, bring the kids along. They were well-known for being a happy, dancing, and outgoing family. Jennifer and Sarah were often complimented on how well-behaved the children were. One of the boys even became a bit of a celebrity, and you probably have seen him before. Do you remember the photograph of the young black child crying, and hugging the white police officer in riot gear that occurred during a Black Lives Matter rally? Well, that was Devante. In a time of racial tension throughout this country, he kind of served as the face of racial healing. They also had another celebrity moment when, during the 2016 presidential campaign, the Hart family attended one of Bernie Sanders' rallies. The Sanders crew decided that they would make good fodder for the TV, and gave them seats right behind Sanders as he gave his speech. Now, Jennifer loved posting on Facebook. She loved giving this impression of a happy, fun, active life that they all share. She would post cute pictures of the kids painting or playing with animals. There'd be videos of the kids dancing. 
overall, she was considered a master Facebooker by her friends because she would post these beautiful pictures and videos and get hundreds of comments and likes in return. The house appeared to be a very healthy environment. The library specifically included many books on African history and culture. The living room was decorated with a bit of an African theme. You know, Sarah and Jennifer were clearly making efforts to establish a healthy environment for these kids of a different ethnicity to grow up in. When they were at festival, the kids were known for giving strangers hugs, dancing around. They often were encouraged to and did dance with some of the musicians there and often got pulled up on stage to dance as the music played. You know, Jennifer was very skilled at putting the family into the limelight, but she never allowed the family to bask there. After the Black Lives Matter photograph and after the Bernie Sanders appearance, she was contacted by several news outlets and other programs, including Good Morning America and the like, for interviews. But she refused them all. She did not want her family to be that much of a focus of attention. So all in all, we, we begin the story with what sounds like really a heroic effort by the hearts to take six kids out of terrible environments, put them together under one roof, raise them together. They enjoyed going out. They got, again, lots of activities. Unfortunately, some cracks begin to appear not, not too long after the family was established. Again, the last adoption occurred in 2008, so keep that in mind as we go through. First, people noticed the Facebook postings were a bit odd. Every time there was a picture of, say, the children painting, the paintbrushes would be dry with no paint on them. Whenever there was a video posted of the children dancing or playing, they went through the motions as if they were being directed. The children posed for lots of pictures at festivals with either at Jennifer's direction or with people who were attending who knew the family, and they happily obliged. But after every photograph, people would notice that the children would take on a listless or zombie-like state until Jennifer snapped her fingers. They almost acted as if they were terrified of Jennifer. At school um, in 2008, then six-year-old Hannah was questioned by her teacher about a bruise on her arm. Hannah admitted that she had been beaten with a belt. After the school called about this incident, Jennifer and Sarah decided to pull their children out of school. In 2010, after re-enrolling the children in school, Abigail complained to her teacher that she had ouchies on her stomach and back. A proper investigation begins with the authorities, and Sarah quickly takes the blame. She falls on the sword to protect Jennifer. The story she gave was Abigail was punished for stealing a penny. The punishment involved being punched in the chest and back. Sarah also held Abigail's head under cold water. Again, all over a penny that Abigail claimed she found at school. Sarah ended up pleading guilty to assault. Uh, she was sentenced to perform one year of community service and five years probation. A year after this incident, Hannah got in trouble at school for stealing food. When questioned, she said that she had not eaten all day. When the school administration called Sarah and raised this concern, she responded by saying, 
Oh, she's playing the food card again. Just give her some water. Now, if you have kids, you know that they will often complain about things that seem silly. You buy them new shoes and instantly they want another pair of shoes. And you have to explain to them that they have perfectly good shoes. And they don't need a pair of $150 sneakers. But it's different to say you just got sneakers where the ones you got versus you were just given some water. Let that fill you up. You can have some more if you want. Of course, that again sparks an investigation. And again, the heart's response is to pull their kids out of school. A relative of Jennifer's commented that Jennifer would regularly deny the children food, severely punish them for minor errors, and consistently remarked on how poorly her children behaved. Now, the relative gushed over what good kids they were, but Jennifer refused to hear it. When the state of Minnesota began to formally investigate these newest allegations, the Hart tribe responded by moving to Oregon, a response that, of course, reeked of total innocence and what any reasonable person would do. He says sarcastically. Now, unfortunately for Susan and Jennifer, if we can say it's unfortunate, the Oregon authorities were aware of the Minnesota investigation and went straight back to it. They uncovered, the Oregon authorities uncovered that the children were not allowed to speak at home without first raising their hands and being recognized. If they laughed at the dinner table, they risked punishment, the most common punishment being no food. Now, Jennifer passionately and vehemently denied these claims and insisted that they were being scrutinized merely because they were a lesbian couple raising black children. Again, because there's an investigation going on, the hearts move, this time from Oregon to Washington in 2017. Shortly after arriving in Washington, one night Hannah jumps out of her second-story window around 1.30 in the morning and flees to the neighbor's house. Though she did not know it and never met her neighbors, the DeKalb family, when Mr. DeKalb opened the door, Hannah dashed in and clutched Mrs. DeKalb's leg in terror, exclaiming that her parents were abusing her. Mr. DeKalb looked outside and noticed the Hart family on the street with flashlights yelling for Hannah. He let them know that Hannah had come to their house. The Hart family, led by Jennifer, instantly shoved their way into the DeKalb's house and insisted on being led to Hannah. Hannah was hiding in the master bedroom begging Mrs. DeCab not to send her home. Jennifer heard her and stormed upstairs. She instantly began scolding Hannah, while Mrs. DeCab intervened and insisted that everybody calm down while they worked this out. Mr. DeCab escorted the rest of the family out of the house, with Susan commenting on her way out that the kids were all drug babies and would act crazy at times. Soon after that... Hannah left with Jennifer, although she was obviously terrified. Amazingly, the DeCabs did not report this situation to the local authorities. However, Mrs. DeCab told her father about the situation, and he went crazy. He immediately called the police and demanded they do a welfare check on the children. Yet apparently, nothing ever occurred from this phone call. 
A few months later, the DeCavs began receiving another surprise visitor, Devante. He began sneaking over to their house when Jennifer and Sarah were gone and asking for food, specifically bread and non-perishable items. This was sporadic at first, but eventually he became a regular visitor such that the DeCavs would take his orders when they would go on grocery shopping trips. After a spell of this occurring, the DeCavs finally decided it was time to contact local law enforcement. Child Protective Services finally took action in March of 2018. They came by to try to do a home inspection on March 23rd and found nobody there. They came by again on March 26th. Again, nobody was there. Now let's go back and talk about how these women from Minnesota were able to adopt children out of Houston, Texas. The first adoption came from a situation where the mother of the three children was addicted to drugs and would disappear at times, would pass out at times, and eventually... Child Protective Services or what have you in Texas intervened and took the children away. They placed the children with an aunt on the condition that the aunt not allow the mother to see the children. But she did not follow that rule. Because of that, the court took the children away from the aunt and placed the children with the hearts. It does not appear that any effort was made to place the children with any other family members. Each child had a different father. No effort was made to place the children with him. The aunt's attorney was shocked that this occurred so quickly. She claimed that she had never seen the system move so fast to get a a group of children out of Houston. When the second adoption was ongoing, the abuse allegations had first surfaced in Minnesota. There was an opportunity for the Texas courts not to allow the Hearts to adopt these children based on those allegations. But ultimately, the Texas courts allowed the adoption to go through. It's important to note that states receive federal funding based on how quickly they can place children with new families. Further, it was apparently common for Texas courts to utilize an agency known as the Permanent Family Resource Center out of Fergus Falls, Minnesota. It was an organization that prided itself on placing children of color. It was not the most upright and outstanding organization out there, as evidenced by the fact that the state of Minnesota shut it down almost immediately after the second adoption for numerous violations and repeated violations of the state licensing standard. The Permanent Family Resources Center was known to often place children with families even when Minnesota child welfare workers did not support the placement. And there was another heart child that doesn't get brought up very often, as she was a child at least for a while. The heart served as foster parents for a 15-year-old that they were hoping to adopt. However, they took her to a routine therapy session one day, dropped her off, and never came back. No goodbyes. No warnings that this was it. They just wiped their hands of her. The therapist had to be the one to tell this poor child that she was going to be placed in a new home. Let's go to the final hours of the Hart family. 
They left their house during the early morning hours of March 26, 2018, apparently in a hurry because the decorative wall that surrounded their driveway was smashed into when they left. On the road, they made a couple of stops. Remember, they're heading from Washington, and they end up in California. Sarah bought eight toothbrushes, deodorant, and food, among other things. And during the drive, Sarah made a payment to one of their credit card balances. However, Sarah was also making a variety of very unusual searches on her phone during the trip. A lot of the odd searches included what was the effects of Benadryl overdosing, what it was it like to experience death by drowning, and other topics that trended along this odd drug and suicide path. Sarah also purchased a significant amount of an antihistamine drug during one of their stops. But we're left with conflicting evidence of Sarah's intentions, right? If she was planning on killing herself during this trip, why buy the toothbrushes? Why worry about deodorant? Why on earth would you pay off your credit card while you're doing this? But then on the other side of the coin, why are you doing these weird searches? Why are you looking up death by drowning and, and what happens if you OD on Benadryl? And what about Jennifer? Did she leave the house that morning knowing that they were going to kill themselves? I mean, she was the dominant one in the relationship and she was driving during this time. We just don't know if this was something she knew when they left or she decided on the way. Now, there's also some speculation as, uh, that the family was having some financial problems. Sarah worked in retail as a manager and earned about $45,000 a year. The state of Texas, through child support payments, gave the family about $41,000 per year. It looks like that possibly up to $30,000 of that came from the state of Texas and not from true child support payments. However, the family lived beyond their means. Their last house was a $400,000 house with two acres of land. They had tens of thousands of dollars worth of credit card debt. The best I could determine, it was somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000. And as the children aged, the support Texas would provide decreased and would be completely extinguished once the child reached the age of 18. Okay, so regardless of whatever motives are going on, regardless of what's in Jennifer's head and Sarah's head, we know that the story ends with the Hart's vehicle careening off a 100-foot cliff in California, landing on its roof on the rocks below, and Jennifer, Sarah, Marcus, Jeremiah, Abigail, and Cesara all being found dead at the scene. Hannah and Devante could not be located until January 2019 when partial remains of Hannah were found not far from the crash site. Nothing has ever been found of Devante's, but a Superior Court judge in California declared him legally dead in April 2019. Once forensic investigators got involved, they, it, it painted a pretty ugly picture. Jennifer was not a drinker at all. She very rarely consumed wine and even then never finished a glass. Yet her blood alcohol content was at least 0.10. That's not very high for an experienced drinker, but for someone who never drinks, that would definitely impair your ability to operate a vehicle safely. Sarah had ingested at least 40 doses of the antihistamine medication. 
The four children also had significant amounts of antihistamine drugs in their system. The lowest, and it didn't state which child, but the lowest amount that they could confirm was at least eight doses in one of the children. And remember, this is what was in their body at the time they died. We don't know how much was actually given to the children and had kind of been used up and burned away before their deaths. It's believed that Sarah and the children were either passed out or in an incredibly drowsy or intoxicated-like state when the crash occurred, thus preventing them from really appreciating what was happening. Jennifer was thought to be drunk so she could have the courage to do the act she planned. The examination of the vehicle indicated that in the final moments before the vehicle crash, it came to a complete stop, set for several seconds, then accelerated towards the cliff. The accelerator was pressed down as far as it would go the entire time. The brake was never touched. Thus, with this evidence, it appears rather clear that this crash was an intentional act and not an accident, as many people believed. So now we've got to talk about some theories. Obviously, we're all left wondering, why did this happen? And unfortunately, where we're left in a position where all we can do is speculate. Personally, I have two theories about what could have been the reason for this tragedy. The first one is the abuse the children were experiencing was much deeper and more systemic than we know. And Jennifer was scared that once investigators got too close, she decided death was better than jail. Now, why would she want to kill the kids too? In my experience in representing criminals, and this is not grounded on any sort of scientific study or research or any expert coming in with a PhD and saying blah, blah, blah. Just from me being around criminals, talking to them, and trying to represent their rights as best I can, I noticed that child sex abusers tended to have an attitude that their relationship with the child was special. And nobody else could provide for them, love for them, or care for them the same way they could. So it would be cruel for them to kill themselves and leave the child alive. Now, there is no evidence of sexual abuse in this case. However, it would not be shocking to me if Jennifer and perhaps Sarah had that same attitude that we're the best people for these kids. It would be cruel to force them to find another family. My second theory is that Jennifer seemed to have a need to project the perfect family life. And she did this through an almost us versus the world kind of view. She may have decided with all the pressure building on them that the best way to end the story was through an accident. And I'm doing finger quotes, which I know you can't see. I don't know why I'm doing them. No one can see me. This way, she can't be held accountable for failing as a mom when an accident was what ruined their family. I think Sarah was eventually convinced to go this route. She seemed to be rather weak-willed when it came to Jennifer. But I also think that she was hopeful that Jennifer would reach a different conclusion, hence the purchasing of toothbrushes and paying off the credit card. If this theory is correct then it really demonstrates what an iron grip Jennifer had over the family. 
such that even Sarah, a grown adult, would be willing to let her life and the lives of her six children be placed in Jennifer's hand. I also want to talk about the adoptions themselves because I I find this whole scenario extremely odd. I don't know why Houston area family courts would be so eager to work with a Minnesota adoption agency. In my research, I found suggestions that these kids had cousins and other family in the Houston area. And you would think that the courts would want these kids to grow up around as much family as possible. Even if they couldn't find a family member to take these children in, a family in Houston that would be willing to adopt seems superior to a family in Minnesota. At least if you keep the children in the area, they have a chance to continue their relationships with the better parts of their family. I heard a piece of an interview with the judge who handled the second adoption. And he presented himself as a man who was overly defensive of his decision. He insisted the hearts were the best placement for the children. He put no stock in the abuse allegations which were ongoing at the time even though he was aware that Minnesota was investigating the claims and not reached a conclusion. Overall, I can't think of a good reason for these children to be moved from Houston to Minnesota. And in my experience, when you can't find a good reason for something, that only leaves bad reasons. And what do most of the bad reasons circle around? Money. But I'm speculating here. You can hear... The interview with the judge that I referenced in the Broken Hearts podcast, that's H-A-R-T-S. They actually do an excellent job covering this case because they have an investigative reporter who goes out and interviews all the key players in this sad tale. And so if you want to learn more about this tragedy, definitely recommend you look up Broken Hearts and listen to it. I think they only had eight or nine episodes, but... It was a thorough covering of what went on here. We also have to ask what happened to Devante. Some people speculate that it's possible he survived the crash. I admit that's possible, but I, I think it's very unlikely. Soon after the accident, you had dozens, if not hundreds, of people searching the area for Devante and Hannah. Again, this family was very well liked by the festival circuit and was held up as a model family by many people who obviously didn't know what was going on behind closed doors. Police also showed up en masse with cadaver dogs and thoroughly searched the area. The only way Devante gets out of that situation without being detected is if he is not injured in the fall, manages to escape, and get away from the scene of the accident long before law enforcement or any other people notice the accident. And this is assuming Devante wasn't drugged in any way. If he consumed Benadryl in the amounts that the other family members did, he would have also been incredibly groggy and likely unable to walk. So with that, we're, we end this sad story. This case unfortunately highlights the holes that exist in the methods we have in place to protect adopted children. Each state has its own procedures and do what they can to protect children. But once you start crossing state lines, that can all fall apart. Not every state plays nice with its neighboring states. And so it would be easy for a diabolical family to bounce around to avoid scrutiny while continuing to abuse 
their adoptive children. I'm going to quote from a family friend, and I will apologize because I'm going to butcher this name, Alexandria Agropolius. That was awful, I know. I'm sorry. But she stated, and again, this is a direct quote, How is it in this great country of ours, two mothers with a history of reported child abuse in three states disclosed by eight different adults over a 10-year span still have custody of six children? This happened because our state agencies are unable to communicate effectively. Jen and Sarah were able to skip from state to state with six children, knowing that a trail of their documented abuse would go without further investigation or consequence. As far as sources for this one, um, again, the Broken Hearts podcast is amazing. Check it out. It's not very long, but they cover a lot of ground in those nine episodes. They interview a lot of people, and they really get into the details of the oddness of the family and everything that was going on. They, they do spend a lot of time talking about Jennifer and Sarah and their interesting lifestyle and point of view. Um, I also relied on Wikipedia, duh, The Washington Post, Oregon Live, KATU News, and CBS News for additional facts throughout here. Now it's time for our palate cleanser, the highlight of every episode. Why did the can crusher quit its job? Because it was soda pressing. Soda pressing. It's okay. It's okay. I, I hate myself more for telling these jokes than you could ever hear could for hearing them. Okay, well, thank you again for listening. I truly appreciate it. If you can make it through the palate cleanser and still be listening, you are a champ. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you would give it a good rating on whatever app you use. Love it. Would be tickled if you subscribe so you never miss a palate cleanser, which is why I know you tune in. 30 minutes of me blab it and then a terrible joke at the end. It's a recipe for success. This is my get-rich-quick scheme. If you ever have any questions, ideas, comments, or just want to fuss at me for being a terrible human being, you can reach out to me at info at kmhpodcast.com. With that, I offer my warmest regards. <laughs>